the series that we're in, uh, we just have simply called this time of Lent, we, we've keyed in on the word returning. Uh, this week being the fourth week of Lent, um, we again want to uh, remember the importance of returning to God. It's recognizing that when we return to God, we are returning to our source of joy and peace and satisfaction. In Joel chapter 2, it's a verse that's often read on Ash Wednesday, and we, we come back to it regularly in, this, uh, in these Sundays of Lent. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So even if you've never committed to follow Jesus to begin with, I'd still use the word returning um, because each of us was originally created for life with God. And as a result of each of us choosing to go our own way in our own ways, uh, we are invited to return to God, whether it's for the first time or for the umpteenth time. And that's what this special time of uh, the Christian calendar year known as Lent is, is for. So, um, there are readings that have been put together um, by scholars far more brilliant than, than me. And for centuries now, um, Christians around the world have uh, focused on certain scripture passages um, year in and year out uh, for different seasons of the Christian calendar year. Lent is, is no exception. And one thing I like about, for me personally, reading the lectionary readings, the the keying in on those four scripture passages each week that are given to me is um, it's not me picking and choosing my favorite parts of the Bible. It is, um, it's a plan that's laid out and the opportunity is for me to open myself up to the scriptures and for the scriptures to read me and for those scriptures to, to do a work in me. And I would say the passage that Jonathan read from Numbers is one of those passages that I wouldn't have picked. Um, to, to read. It's, it's a little shocking. It is, it reminds me of uh, the movie Snakes on a Plane uh, that it just evokes all kinds of odd images to me. Um, but I know that God gave his word to me to draw me closer to him. And even in these passages that leave me scratching my head a little bit, I still want to find the invitation. And I want to, I want to present this passage in Numbers 21 and John chapter 3 in a way that you feel God inviting you to return to him. So a little context for that story um, in, in Numbers chapter 21. Um, if we go back before that, um, this took place after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, 400 years of slaver, slavery in Egypt, and Moses leads the people to freedom. Uh, their rescue was filled with drama and signs of God's favor, but it didn't take very long before they began pining for a return to Egypt of all places. And rather than gratitude and a deepened trust in God, those people complained and also questioned God's plans. Uh, for example, and again, this is before the um, the uh, story in Numbers 21. In Exodus 15, we read the story of those same people, and their first time of complaining was about bitter water. So the Lord showed Moses how to sweeten it. 
in Exodus 16, the people complained about their lack of food. So the Lord gave them manna to eat. In Exodus 17, they complained that they were thirsty. So the Lord had Moses strike a rock and water spilled out. And a bit later after that, they complained about a lack of meat. So the Lord literally had quail or some type of bird blown in that they could feast on. And then that brings us to the point of their history that Jonathan just read a few minutes ago. These rescued people are again complaining. And as they've done so many times already in just this short time of uh, since they've left Egypt, they voiced this question to God and to Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? So what Moses had on his hands in this story were a whole bunch of people who wanted to go back to what was familiar. And even though it would be a return to slavery and hardships, Egypt had a strange pull on the people of Israel. And, and I, I can't really point a finger at them and shake my head because that's how it is for me uh, when I've stepped out into a new life at the first sign that that new way of living with God um, showed that it had ups and downs, I began to long to return to what I knew, to return to what was familiar, even though I knew deep down that was not what was healthy for me. And maybe you can relate to that. When, when faith, when our faith is tested, many of us want to bail on that faith journey and just go back to what we can see because faith is a journey uh, where we can't see. Um, we want to go back to what is predictable. Uh, we want to go back to what we feel in control of. And sometimes we want to go back to Egypt because we believe that we know better than God what is best for us. And so the, the cry of the people in Numbers 21 was not just against Moses. Um, if you remember what uh, how John, Jonathan read that, it is they, they cried out against the Lord and Moses. Their soul and critical spirit struck a nerve. And then we read the Lord sent uh, venomous snakes, or some translations say fiery snakes among the people. Fiery snakes doesn't mean that they were like fire-breathing dragons. Uh, they were so named because their venomous bite felt like a burning fire on their skin. And from, of it, and from this, some people died. As we think of the big picture, and I believe that it's always best to read individual stories in the context of the big story of God and God's narrative, um, this was not the first time a serpent was involved in the death of God's beloved people. In Genesis chapter 3, a serpent deceived Eve and led her to think that she knew better than God himself what was good and what was right. And that same lie and that same response continues all these centuries later today. Isn't, when you think about it, isn't every sin a way of saying, God, you have declared what you consider best for me but I know what is best for me in this situation. And so whether, whether it's a nation of rescued people or individuals like me, um, we think we know the best way to live, the best place to live, the things that we must have to live. And when we don't get what we think is best, 
we speak out against God. Now, we, we might not verbally speak out against God, but our actions speak out against God. And when we choose our way over God's way, when we choose what we think is best over what God says is best, the Bible has one word for it, and it's, it's called sin. Um, it's not a word that I like to use a whole lot. It's not one that's comfortable in our culture, um, but it is one that's regularly used in the Bible. And it was not new to them um, in that it was an archery term. That word sin literally means uh, to miss the mark. So if you can imagine that arrow um, either falling short of the target or not hitting the bullseye. So sin is when we tell God what the true bullseye should be. Sin is when we aim for what we think is the bullseye, what we think is most life-giving rather than trusting the one who gave us life. And sin separates us from God. And this is the most terrible consequence, whether it is a momentary separation here or eternal separation, our souls being separated from God. But separation from God is the consequence of when we miss the mark. And separation from God always leads to a death. Abiding in Christ, living closely with him, always leads to life. Now, the death is a consequence of separation from sin is most notably uh, the death of our soul. The, uh, the soul is that essence of who we are. It's who God created us to be. Our souls existed before we took our first breath. And the Bible teaches us that our soul will live, or, live on after we take our last breath. Um, so the consequence of our separation from God is the death of our soul. And it's cutting us off from our life source that results in death. Um, we are like pre-born babies in the womb of this world, foolishly cutting the cord that connects us to the one who loves us, who has carried us, who gives us life. Sin cuts the cord. Sin is saying, I know what is best for myself. Sin is saying, I can give myself life on my own. I had, I had two conversations with my teenage kids this past week, two separate conversations with each of them that could be summed up in this way. Kids, you are growing up and you know what I think is best for you in this situation, but you need to choose. I'm not gonna force you to do what I believe is best for you. I think in this instance, you need to choose. Now, I don't do that all the time. I certainly did not do that um, very frequently as when they were much, when they were quite a bit younger. But I, I believe that um, we have to recognize that our Heavenly Father has given us a free will. And sometimes we, we reposition that bullseye. Sometimes we cut our own cord and God says, I'm, I'm showing you a pathway to what is best and most fulfilling but you have the freedom to choose. I will not force you to do what is best for you, but God always provides a way of return. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. God always provides a way of return. 
Even when those people were, were bitten by fiery serpents, God provided a way of return. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a Jewish seeker named Nicodemus. And this man was very, very knowledgeable of his ancestral history, especially that uh, story in Numbers. Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. A direct reference to Numbers 21, um, instructed by the Lord, Moses, as we read earlier, Moses crafts a bronze serpent and attaches it to a tall pole. And so the people, if bitten, look to the bronze serpent for life. Um, the American Medical Association has adopted a similar image. It's a, a snake um, wrapped around, slithered around a staff or a pole, and it's the symbol of healing. Now, what I thought was interesting is um, God could have had Moses put anything on the pole, but God chose to have a likeness of the snake, of their kryptonite, so to speak, lifted up on the pole. And I just thought that was strange. I mean, why not, why not have people look at a bronze image of a, of a doctor um, if you're in need of healing? Why look at what caused you so much harm and pain? Or why not a bronze image of Moses, who was one of very few not complaining, who was not distancing himself from God? But instead, God had Moses fashion an image of their downfall. And I wondered, could it be that God was making the point that suffering is often the only path that we as rebellious people take to redemption? That the road to healing oftentimes does run through pain? So instead of avoiding the pain, God says, I want you to look at that pain and recognize that you're not alone in it. That the Son of Man must first be lifted up on the cross. Even he must be lifted up on the cross before experiencing the resurrection. We carry a cross before we are resurrected. We walk through our suffering knowing that new life is on the other side. So in this season of Lent, lifting up the serpent in the wilderness foreshadows Good Friday and Easter morning. That's This is a way that we are preparing ourselves. We reach back to passages like this and it gives us a deeper understanding and appreciation of what took place, what Jesus offered himself for on that Good Friday and the power of the resurrection on Sunday morning. In the, in the two growth groups that are going through a book titled The Good and Beautiful God, uh, we have been just kind of right in the midst of studying a chapter on the holiness of God. And specifically, we're holding the tension of a God of love who also expresses wrath. And it says, I'm going to read a couple of sentences from, from the book. Um, James Bryan Smith, the author, says this, The essence of God is holiness. God is pure. There is no sin, evil, or darkness in God. Holiness is an essential part of God's nature as is love. God is always holy. God is always loving. 
There is never an action of God's that does not emanate from love. So even when God expresses wrath, it originated in his love. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around this because I think of wrath through the ways that I would express it instead of the pure ways that God expresses it. God's wrath is a mindful, objective, and rational response. That's something else that we read in that chapter. It is actually an act of love. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy us as his precious people. Wrath is a sign of God's love. And then the author goes on to state, wrath is not God's nature. Wrath is not something God is, but something that God does. God is love, but wrath is just something that he does in response, in a loving response to his people. We uh, began this year looking at this acronym of, of growth, and the G for growth was to be grounded in God's narrative, to understand that maybe there's some narratives that we've been living by that are not true that are not of God, that are not uh, what he has ordained for us. And one of those false narratives is that God is wrathful. A false narrative that so many of us maybe live with is that God is always mad. But the true narrative is that God is always love. Love being the essence of who he is, but wrath is merely something that God does. Love is an attribute, wrath is an action. Remember this, God cannot not love. Um, the songs that the Holmes family led us in, we, we sang about the goodness of God, and then we sang a song about coming out into the open and saying, I'm broken and I'm hurting. We can come out into the open because we know God is good, because the true narrative is God is always loving. Every response that he has towards us, even if it's painful, is actually a response of love. And so as I was thinking about this passage and tying these two together with, with Jesus saying, as the Son of Man, I must be lifted up, and you look to me for healing, and and go into even some of the details of why the serpent was probably made of bronze and things like that. I read a lot of that. I just, I want us to do what the scriptures are saying, and that is to look to Jesus. Just as Moses said, um, look to this bronze serpent that's lifted up for healing. I want us to look up to the lifted up Christ. I want us to redirect our gaze on him. So for those of us who have been bitten, for those of us who have realized maybe my way isn't the best, for those of us who are cut off from God, I want to give us a practical way to return. And it's that litany of penitence that I've mentioned. And um, Maybe we can post that link one more time in the chat feature, give you one more opportunity to click on that and uh, to pull up that PDF. Um, this litany 
of penitence has literally been prayed millions of times by Christians all around the world. It's adapted from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer is, among other things, a collection of prayers that have been recorded and passed down for generations, beginning way back in Bible times. Um, and they're passed down to be used by Christians like us for mutual encouragement. Now, the word common in the Book of Common Prayer does not mean ordinary, but think of common as the root word for community. It's a series of scriptures and prayers, the Book of Common Prayer, that we share in common. We are reminded that we have this in common, and especially as we are in this process of returning to God. This is um, an opportunity to unite us, to help God's church as a whole people to pray together and to return together. Um, now you'll, you'll notice whether you printed it or you're viewing it, uh, that there are portions of this that are in bold font. And that's the portion that I'll have you read in just a moment. So I'll read the, the normal font. You'll read what is, uh, what's in bold. And so to use the language of Numbers 21, we turn now to set our gaze once again on God. We recognize God as high and lifted up above all that is around us. It's a reminder that we do not find life in the things around us. Rather, we find life by looking to Christ. And the greatest impact of this prayer is simply the salvation life that we receive by turning our eyes towards him. So in preparation for this, I'm just going to invite you, and even if you don't, uh, you weren't able to access that, uh, I just want to invite you to uh, just actively listen. So each of us, as best as you can right now, I want you to settle into wherever you are seated. I encourage you to sit upright, feet on the floor, and just notice your breathing, and with gratitude receive each breath as a gift from God. And in this up upcoming time of confession, we are praying to a God who is love who cannot not love you. This is a prayer where we come out of hiding and we step into his arms. So I want you to engage in this prayer with me, knowing that his desire, God's desire for you is, is never shame. It's always life. And confession is that pathway that leads to life. Most holy and merciful Father, I confess to you and to the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth, I have not loved you with my whole heart and mind and strength. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I have not forgiven others as I have been forgiven. All of us together have mercy on me, Lord. I have been deaf to your call to serve as Christ served us. I have not been true to the mind of Christ, I have grieved your Holy Spirit. Have mercy on me, Lord. I confess to you, Lord, all my past unfaithfulness, the pride, 
hypocrisy, and impatience of my life. I confess to you, Lord, my self-indulgent appetites and ways and my exploitation of other people, I confess to you, Lord, my anger at my own frustration and my envy of those more fortunate than I, I confess to you, Lord, my intemperate love of worldly goods and comforts and my dishonesty in daily life and work, I confess to you, Lord, my negligence in prayer and worship and my failure to commend the faith that is in me, I confess to you, Lord. Accept my repentance, Lord, for the wrongs I have done, for my blindness to human need and suffering and my indifference to injustice and cruelty. Accept my repentance, Lord. For all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts toward my neighbors, and for my prejudice and contempt towards those who differ from me, accept my repentance, Lord. For my waste and pollution of your creation and my lack of concern for those who come after us, accept my repentance, Lord. Restore me, good Lord, and let your anger depart from me. Favorably hear me for your mercy is great. Accomplish in me and all of your church the work of your salvation, that I may show forth your glory in the world by the cross and passion of your Son, our Lord. Bring me with all your saints to the joy of his resurrection. Amen. That passage in John chapter 3 that we looked at earlier, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and all who look upon the Son of Man will be saved. I want to also speak the two life-giving verses that follow those. They may sound familiar. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We have prayed this prayer to return to salvation life. And no matter how many times you get bit by temptation, no matter how often you turn your back on God, he always provides a way to return. I can think of no better approach to communion than what we've just taken. If you could uh, grab the bread and the cup that you have chosen to, uh, to use for this time of communion. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul describes this, and this is, this is a, a reminder of how powerful confession is. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So prayers of confession and a request for forgiveness often precede communion. When we're in person and you stand in that line to begin your walk towards those communion elements, for most of us, that's a time for us um, to confess sins and to make ourselves right before God. And then communion is actually a celebration of Christ's body and blood. We celebrate 
that we are saved. But when we partake of those elements, having turned our gaze to Christ, it is now with a clean heart that we partake in communion. It is by the mercies of God and his forgiveness that we take, we eat, and we drink. First, the bread. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you for, for joining us today. Um, I can't begin to describe how much I look forward to seeing many of you in person at our outdoor Easter service. Again, if you're unable to attend, we're going to be saying hi to you via Zoom. We're trying to figure out how to position cameras so uh, even so you can see the people that are there and you can feel more a part of this awesome family. Um, uh, so whether you return in person or virtually, um, let's each return to God with our whole heart. Can you imagine what Easter morning will be like for us, a gathered people, a forgiven, fully alive people, a gathering of people returning to God with all of our heart? How rich that morning is going to be. So with that Joel um, chapter 2 passage in mind and this theme of returning, I pray this prayer of blessing for you. Lord, bless these people as they return to you with their whole heart. Return to you as the Lord their God, for you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Amen.